Roll Podcast. Hey, everybody. It's Rich here. Rich Roll, your host. This is my podcast. Welcome to it. How are you guys doing? So I think it's time to talk about what's going on, don't you think? It's time to talk about systemic racism, police brutality, civil rights. It's time to talk about Black Lives Matter, national upheaval, call for change, and also this unprecedented opportunity that this unique moment presents right now for us to evolve, to grow, and heal as individuals and as a society. So to do just that, I've enlisted my friend, Adam Skolnick, to host or sort of co-host what I anticipate will be an ongoing series of Ask Me Anything-themed conversations, which is this new experiment in format change that I will be, to some extent, trading duties, reversing roles from time to time, swapping seats, in order to share a little bit more of my own personal perspective on matters of audience interest. As for my friend Adam, Longtime listeners will recall his 2016 appearance on the podcast. That was episode 218. In that conversation, we talked about his life. We talked about his book, One Breath, which is this really beautiful, magnificent biography of America's greatest free diver, Nicholas Mavoli. Uh, but for those of you who are unfamiliar, Adam is an activist. He's a veteran journalist, perhaps best known as the co-author of David Goggins' juggernaut memoir, Can't Hurt Me. You guys read that book, right? Adam has written for the New York Times, Playboy, Outside, ESPN, BBC, Men's Health, and many other prominent publications. And you might've caught his series of really outstanding pieces on Colin O'Brady and Colin's historic solo traverse of Antarctica in 2018 that Adam wrote up for the New York Times. In any event, Adam is a great conversationalist. I think he's a really perfect fit for this new series, this experiment. And uh, you guys are gonna soon find out. But first, let's take care of some business. Okay, so before we launch in, I just wanna say upfront that this podcast is not and has never been a news program or a political talk show. I don't go out of my way to court controversy, and I always endeavor to unite people rather than divide. But this show is also about what's important, and it's about fundamentally having conversations that matter. And right now, no conversation matters more than Black Lives Matter. I've held off on posting an episode like this, not just because of the historically evergreen nature of this show and the kind of protracted production cycle we've historically operated under, but also because I didn't want to just simply react in the moment. I really wanted to take a minute to listen before speaking, to kind of process what's going on, to also participate in the protests with my family and, of course, read, because I think it's important to address what's happening from an informed and, and reflective point of view rather than a reactive or kind of impulsive, reflexive perspective. So that's what we're doing here today. I'm ready to talk about it. And 
This is the first of many conversations I'm gonna be sharing over the coming weeks about race in America. This particular conversation is about privilege and it's about our collective responsibility to act, to speak up for what's right, to finally dismantle the systemic ills that have contributed to really unspeakable harms that, that I think can no longer go unchecked. And it's also about, again, this unprecedented opportunity in this brilliant, unique moment and what it presents to evolve and to heal as individuals, as a nation, and uh, as a global community. Finally, it's also a discussion about the history and the mission of this podcast, how I'm actively seeking to better myself and to broaden the inclusivity of the program and my advocacy in general. Final note, in the show notes, you'll find many resources, readings, essays, books, other podcasts, documentaries, and links to Black Lives Matter-centered nonprofits. So I encourage all of you guys to explore that list, check it out, donate to the nonprofits there if you can, or find a way to support in other ways. I appreciate all you guys. I don't take the responsibility of this platform or the authority that I have over this sphere lightly. It is a privilege, uh, and it's one that I intend to use to better myself and humanity as a whole. So with that being said, let's do it. This is me and Adam Skolnick. Welcome to the podcast. Today, we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to do a version of Ask Me Anything. We're experimenting with the format a little bit here to try to be current, uh, not only with audience interest, but also with the news cycle to some extent. Um, this is something that came up in my recent podcast with James Altucher, who was encouraging me to share more of my voice and my perspective and opinions on things that the audience is interested in. And I expressed to him in that conversation, my discomfort with just speaking into a microphone alone. So I then uh, reached out to my friend, Adam Skolnick to join me. So it could be more of a conversation and less of a monologue. You guys, uh, longtime listeners will remember Adam. He was on the podcast. I can't remember what episode number it was, but it was quite a while ago. <laughs> he is the author of a book called One Breath about Nick Mavoli, the free diver. Uh, he's also a journalist and a writer, frequent contributor to the New York Times, Outside Magazine, anything else, all kinds of different outlets. Yeah. And you write about environmentalism. You write about endurance sports and a number of other yeah human subjects. rights whatever you know stories that underreported stories kind of right that terrain we've been good friends Adam has recently dipped his toe into the world of swim run uh, Adam's the guy who wrote the article for the New York Times about when I did the Otilla World Championships and then you participated in the uh, the one um, the swim run in Catalina recently that's so, right yeah. that's right I I did the experience yeah. And uh, and I haven't stopped running since. <laughs> right. Um, and you're looking super fit. Hey, thanks. And I always enjoy my conversations with you. And I just thought that you would be a great person to volley back and forth with yeah. in this format. So yeah. we're giving it a go. Thanks for having me. Yeah, man. I'm excited. It's great to, to be I'm here. Excited to talk to you today. Yeah. Um, I think a good place to kind of kick this off is, is to um, directly address this very unique and historic moment that we're in right now, Black Lives Matter. Um, I've been not struggling, that's the wrong word, but 
trying to figure out the best way to communicate around what is occurring in the moment. Um, historically, this podcast has been um, constructed in a way that has prevented it from being nimble enough and responsive enough to be of the moment. Like the mm. conversations are typically evergreen, right? Mm. And I will record lots of conversations and then we have a production cycle and those conversations will be released some weeks later, sometimes four, six, eight weeks later. Right. Uh, in normal times, that's fine. Right now, that seems to be dysfunctional because everything is changing so quickly. And I felt this urgent need to be uh, communicating about what is happening more concurrently with this rapidly escalating and changing landscape that we find ourselves in. So yeah. this is an effort to do just that. Um, and I think you know one thing I want to speak to directly up front is is you know some criticism that's been hurled in my direction. My most recent podcast that went up this past weekend was with my friend Doug Evans. He wrote this book called The Sprout Book. We talked about sprouting. We did touch on food injustice, but predominantly we spoke about his book and the nutritious power of sprouting. And there were some people who were ruffled by that mm -hmm. because it's so asynchronous with what is happening right now. And my immediate reaction is to be defensive, but in truth, there's that's correct, right? Like there, it, it, it you know, it does feel wrong to talk about anything but what's occurring in the news cycle right now. And I understand that. And this is um, what we're doing right now is, is, is one way of rectifying that. And I do wanna say upfront that I have scheduled numerous people of color to be coming on the podcast. Yesterday I did an amazing uh, episode with my friend Byron Davis, uh, former USA national swim team member and his friend, Phil Allen Jr., who's a pastor and a poet and a filmmaker. We had an incredible conversation. That's gonna be going up late Sunday night. Uh, I've got Knox Robinson coming back on the show. I've got John Lewis, the badass vegan. I've reached out to a whole number of other people, including Shaka Singur, Reverend Michael Beckwith, um, some women, of course. So that's all gonna be coming, but uh, this takes time. You know, there yeah. is a production cycle here. So I encourage people to um, be a little bit patient. And also I just wanna let people know that I hear you and I, under, and I understand. And I think that um, as I grapple with how to communicate about this, I went through a period in which I didn't wanna be reactive in the moment. Like I wanted to say my piece, which I did in an Instagram post for the moment, but then I also expressed that I wanted to take the time to also learn and listen, and I've done that. Our family went out and protested, and I've just been paying attention to what's going on so that I can, uh, when, it, when the moment does arise to speak to this, I'm a little bit more informed and I can respond intelligently as opposed to reacting impulsively. Yeah, makes sense. Um you know, I was going through some of the listener questions and you're talking about the future guests. Um, was it something that you ever tracked before in terms of having a diversity of guests or, or is that something that you're just kind of, you're, you're noticing now and wanting to pivot to, or is that something that you've been, has been on your mind for a while and, and, uh, 
Yeah, it's been on my mind. I mean, it's there has been criticism in the past that the podcast is not diverse enough. Mm-hmm. And that's come up again more recently. Like, why is your podcast so white and and so male centric? And again, that's another instance in which I get defensive right. because I look at my list of guests that I've had over the years, and I think about Myrna Valerio and Shaka Singor and George Raveling and David Carter and Bryant Terry and Knox Robinson and David Goggins and Dominic Thompson and Light Watkins and Sean Stevenson and Dr. Robin Shutkan and Silesh Rayo and you know I can think of lots I can rattle off like a lot of African American guests that I've had. Yeah. But when you look at the canon of the work, 520 plus episodes, it doesn't hold up. Mm. And that's something that I have to own. Like I think that the podcast has a lot of growth potential in terms of the diversity of voices that I can bring to it. And I will be the first to admit right now that I haven't done the best job with that. And that's part of my learning curve in this moment is being more sensitive to that truth and that reality rather than just doubling down and saying, look at all the people that I've had. Yeah. You know, why are you saying that? It's to actually reflect inward and honestly and objectively and try to understand where that perspective is coming from. And when I do look at it objectively, I see that point. And I think that there is improvement there that um, I need to commit to. And so I am committing to that right now. I've already taken action to, you know, rectify that to some regard. And I think that it's important right now to open this up to a diversity of voices. You know, this is not a news podcast and I resist uh, trying to be, you know, I've resisted politics in general and I don't court controversy, but without a doubt, this is an unprecedented historic moment. And I think it's super important to be engaged in what's happening right now. You know, I very much wanna be on the right side of history and I wanna get this right. And despite the fact that this isn't a news podcast, at the same time, it is a podcast about conversations that matter. And right now, nothing matters more than Black Lives Matter and what we're seeing unfolding, not just nationally, but globally, worldwide. Totally agree. I think, um, and by the way, that question came in from Stacy Alice Johnson, so I don't wanna mm. wanna make sure that we acknowledge that. Um, but you know, when when you're you're talking about that, a, a couple of things come to mind. One is um, this is a moment where we all have to do, and by we all I mean white people have to do the inner work and and examine our own relationship to race in this country. And I think that um, it's kind of a, this is the reconciliation moment. You know, when I, I started to, to think about kind of the, the greater issues here and why it's taken so long and what this moment means, you know, in, in after World War II, I know this because as a Jew, I know, I mean, I'm like uh-huh. well steeped in Holocaust yeah. uh, info. And uh, after World War II, there was reconstruction in Germany. And around 1960, there was this resurgence of German nationalism. And around that same time, Israel found out that Adolf Eichmann, who is kind of the managing director of all things Holocaust, he, he, got, he managed the trains and the schedules. He was found in, in um, Argentina. And they got him and they put him on trial all over the world. They could tune in and see him on trial in, in Israel. And after that moment, 
Germany totally changed their education system towards reconciliation mm. um, and to to educate. So every year for years in school, Germans have to devote a substantial amount of time to examine what happened, how they slipped into nationalism and and what happened in the Holocaust, all the horrors in great detail. And we don't do that. Mm-hmm. You know, we've never really done that. You know, we gloss over slavery, we gloss gloss over Jim Crow stuff, segregation. It's not taught every year. It's not taught in great detail. And it's taught through the lens of the victors. And you know, this taught. is something that came up in the podcast yesterday. Yeah. Like the way that we were educated around these issues is from a perspective that is rather myopic. And yeah. that's the co- those are the covers that are getting pulled right now. Yeah, exactly. And, and so you can't, if you don't examine it, and it's all the th- the thing, it's all about hard truths. I mean, what what your 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 podcast isn't a news podcast, but it is a how to live better podcast. It's not just a podcast of ideas; it's a be- podcast of ideas that you can relate to and and improve your own life if you if you take the information as as it is, like brain food, mm-hmm. and decide to dedicate yourself to it. And these are hard truths that we have not dealt with in this country. And, um, and, and so now people are, you know, it's very exciting to see yeah. like the top of the bestseller lists are these, you know, how to be anti-racist right. and white fragility and some, some books that are very recent um, that did well enough, but now are really um, selling. And that, that's, I think that's a great thing because people are now doing their own education. Um, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't be doing more uh, systemically. Yeah. Systemically is the key word. And it's this interesting juxtaposition. On the one hand, you have these massive protests that are very diverse in their socioeconomic and ethnic makeup. You know, it's so interesting to take to the streets and see, you know, so many white people and brown people, people of color, people of all shapes and forms uniting around these ideas. And I found myself much more emotional than I expected. Mm which is so hopeful and heartening. At the same time, you go online and the vitriol and the um, resistance to these ideas is of equal force and measure Hmm. at times. Um, I think that that is going to, you know, lose out in the long run, but there is a certain swath of the population that's very threatened by this. And Mm. I'm interested in why that's the case. And my sense is that on some level, there's a perception that it's a zero sum game. Like if we're talking about Black Lives Matter, that that somehow dismisses the value and importance of other lives. And right now, you know, on top of this uprising in awareness, we're also seeing the greater disenfranchisement of a lot of people due to unemployment and Mm -hmm you know, the, the, the sort of domino effect of coronavirus in this pandemic. And that's making people more afraid and more calcified around their identities and their sense of, you know, protecting what's theirs. Yeah. And so there's an interesting turf war that's going on right now. And I think so much of that, you know, resistance to change or resistance to, um, you know, embracing this idea that we need significant reformation is coming from that place of fear and disenfranchisement. Yeah, no, I think you're right. But if you and if you go back to the whole idea of race, um, I mean, it's obviously an illusion, right? It's an illusion 
created by white people. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was created by white people for two basic reasons. One is to give ourselves, and ourselves meaning Europeans at the time, license to travel abroad, other, other lands, other cultures, take the land, take the stuff, do whatever they want with it, right. subjugate the right. people. So right. why? Because we were superior in the eyes of God. That was the idea of, of race, right? And they, it was created by white people. Nobody, no, nobody else created race. So that's one. And the other reason it was used to uh, divide people, to divide people up, mainly poor white people for years have been fed this idea of race saying, no, you're, you know, you're better off than look at these black people over here in this country. Anyway, Mm -hmm. look at these people over here. You're better off. You're superior to them. And that's what a lot of people latched onto. And that has allowed the powers that be, whether it be wealthy people, whether it be Kings and Lords, just wealthy, uh, you know, Americans or the power structure to exploit them. Mm Mm-hmm. And exploit all of us. And so it's basically a divide and conquer trick that was created. And that's all race is. Mm-hmm. Race is an illusion and it's a divide and conquer trick. And now it matters because it's been baked into the American way of life. It's like this weird neuroses that, is, that has been baked into all of us. And we all have it. That's why we're doing this kind of inner work now. Because we grew up and live in a place where that has been baked into the sauce. So, yeah, and yeah. it's a matter of of debugging yeah. ourselves, like rebooting our operating system with you know some kind of antivirus software to cleanse us of that. And I think that process of looking inward and evaluating the extent to which race plays a factor in the conscious awareness of the average person is challenging because most people would consider themselves not to be racist. I don't think that I'm a racist person. I don't, you know, commingle or surround myself with racist people. But when the racism is systemic, there are institutions in place that function in a way irrespective of our own personal relationship with race that tip the scales in the wrong direction and perpetrate these sorts of harms. And even deeper beneath that, is that embedded system, that operating system, that on a very unconscious level, there is that awareness of you know uh, stratification around race that mm. is, and, and that's very uncomfortable mm. to like say you know what 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 part of my own psyche is functioning on that operating system, and how can I deconstruct that, or how can I get honest with myself about that so that I can transcend that. And I think a lot of people take offense to that because mm-hmm. they think they're not racist and there is no work to be done. But I would challenge everybody to, that's what I'm trying to do right now. I'm trying to be honest about that. And a perfect example is like, well, just look at all the guests that I've had on the podcast, right. most, mostly white people, right. you know what I mean? So right. what's going on with me? I'm not a racist person, but but here's the manifestation of my life's work. And that tells a story, right? So um, what is that story that's being told? And what aspect of that has to do with race? And that's like that's the hill that I need to climb right now. Yeah, I mean, you know, we're we're all grappling with our implicit biases, biases, and that just happens, like because we do have this weird, overt um, awareness of race that that isn't mm. serving any anybody. 
yeah. especially black people. Um, and like Toni Morrison, I, I just saw Toni Morrison clip from the old Charlie Rose show, and um, she right, was, you like, said and that she, to and me. she was yeah. like, you know, but you know, she she flipped it, and she was like, no, what's that doing to you, white people? Because I'm fine. Right. Um, well, Charlie asked her something like. Yeah is race still a thing for you because you're this Pulitzer Prize winning, you know, right. heralded, you know, poet laureate, like you've transcended race. Yeah. And she said, that's the wrong question. Yeah, the wrong, that's the wrong question. What's, what, what, how do white people have to deal with race? And, and it's almost like, if you can only be taller than me because I'm on my knees, what's that say about you mm-hmm. and your significance? Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that, and but if you, if you look at the story of, uh, of America, that's really the story. I mean, I was watching this uh, Ken Burns documentary about Jack Johnson, the boxer, last night, and to see um, how the LA Times and the New York Times were writing about him, the greatest athlete, because at the time, heavyweight boxing was the pinnacle of sports, right. uh, the greatest athlete in sports. Um, you'd be surprised uh, how vitriolic it was, how racist it was. And these are you know, I mm-hmm. write for the New York Times, but you, mm-hmm. we don't even know that, right? We don't know that as modern Americans that that's that's how overt it was, right? That like there was straight up racist stuff in news stories. Um, you know, we talk about fake news now because Trump's always talking about fake news and he's delivering and retweeting fake news, and we had actual fake news affect our election in 2016. Black Americans have been dealing with fake news for hundreds of years, right? Um, stuff that they know has happened to them reported as false in the mainstream media mm. for years and years. Um, you know, this is nothing new. So, you know, I don't, I, mean, I don't know where I got onto that tangent, but- uh, Yeah, well, they, yeah. They, they, you know, it goes back to, you know, history is told by the the victors. Yeah. There was an interesting thread on Twitter and I'm forgetting who posted it, um, but it was a very long thread about Martin Luther King. And the- extent to which white America embraces him and pivots around his message of nonviolence. Mm. But this sort of broke down a different reality <laughs> about what his message was about. Yes, nonviolence was part of it, but but what gets missed in that is that it was all about civil disobedience. Mm-hmm. And with that, we're talking, you know, civil, yes, but disobedient, right? Making people uncomfortable was a big part of it. Not protesting where they tell you you can protest, but protesting where they tell you you can't, mm. right? And that gets lost in the conversation around MLK. I mean, that's just one example. And I think another flare up that we're seeing right now is the conversation around defunding the police. Yeah. Because a lot of people are upset about that. Like, oh, you want to get rid of the police? That's not what defunding means. Defunding could mean a lot of things, but I think what it really is getting at is the core dysfunction in the systemic institution of policing to begin with, which in which is very much a community-based thing, but it goes back to what you were saying earlier about erecting mechanisms of control to solidify power structures. Yeah. I mean we see protect and serve, but really fundamentally, that's what it's about. And it's become uh, you know, highly dysfunctional in our current era. And defunding is a call to have a conversation about the fundamental purpose of policing and the allocation of resources to drive towards a more productive goal for everybody. Yeah, you know, I was, I was, I wrote something down here. So I'm just kind of like sifting through, but like these big ideas, 
are very exciting. They scare people. I mean, the, the, the defunding police talk does scare some people, mm-hmm. especially more conservative people. Um, but these these it's these big ideas are inspiring, and we should stay open to them because I think what what defunding the police if, and really we're just talking about cutting budgets. You know, in very few cases is it is it talking about abolishing a police? Yeah, nobody department. nobody's talking about no, that. No, it's talking about cutting budgets, right? And I think personally, I mean, this is just my personal opinion that we've for a long time have had a, a skewed budget towards militarization and the national level. I've always thought, God, why don't we take some of that military budget and put it into our under, underfunded schools and pay teachers more? Yeah, social um, services, social kids services. programs, and, mental and, health. And, and the funny thing is I always thought about it as a national thing, but it's going to start now with right. the police because of the activists in the streets, because of Black Lives Matter. Um, this is where it starts. And I think we're going to see if this, if we can push this and continue, continue the protests and continue the lobbying efforts and having lawmakers get on board, if we can see it at the, at the local level, moving some money from militarization and enforcement and, and basically let's call it what it is, uh, weapons and death yeah. and move it towards nurturing and, and nurturing life. And, and giving people a better chance at a great life through education and, and through healthcare, um, I think we're going to see a better country come out of it. So I, it's funny, the thread of defunding the police could be the, the, the trick. You know, th- that's what it is. If you can, if the thread is white supremacy and you can start pulling it through the defunding the police, what else, what can happen to this country mm-hmm. in a positive way? And I mm-hmm. think that's, that's the big idea to think about. We're already seeing it. Yeah. Minneapolis has already done that. Yeah. They've basically said we're stripping this thing down to its to its you know to its studs, and we're going to rebuild this from the ground up. And I believe Camden, New Jersey, is a kind of a pilot program example yeah, of that. They've I done something that. similar, yeah, um, in that regard. And and again, Austin, that's Texas another, has something where you they? where you can uh-huh. call nine one one, but you, you you can choose police or mental health responders. Yeah. First responders. Yeah, it's super inspiring. Yeah. Um, you know, at the same time, we're seeing this malignant narcissist in the White House who's, you know, constructed a wall around his domicile. <laughs> it's not uh, his domicile. And, yeah, right. It's the people's domicile, <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> Ensconced in this building um, while he's, you know, basically pulled out every trick from the, the you know, despot's handbook. Mm to activate his base. And my sense is that it's backfiring right now. There will, all, there will always be you know, his people who are gonna support what he's doing, but there are significant cracks in that firmament uh, at the moment. You know, I don't think that the average person uh, takes kindly to seeing the extent of militarization in the streets to police its own people and armies, battalions of, of essentially soldiers who won't tell you who they work for or who they report to or Bob Barr out there pretending like he's Patton or something. <laughs> you know, I, it, it, it's, it's disturbing. And I think most rational people are struggling with what that means and what that says about America. I think so. I mean, I think you were talking about um, the hardcore people that are resistant um, look at Buffalo Police Department mm-hmm. um, and how how 
I think they demonstrate this mass resignation from the riot squad because two people pushed over a 75-year-old man instead of just dealing with them in a more peaceably way. Right, it was like 57 way. of them. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't uh, resign, they got reassigned, right? Right, I they quit the riot department. squad or whatever. Right. And then 100 people showed up for the arraignment of those two officers and they cheered them. And it just shows you there's a, uh, there's a sensitivity, especially among cops um, and police around the country, but this hardcore group, they're very sensitive. They don't want to talk about these things. They're resistant. And I think even... You know, a lot of us don't want to be piled with a bunch of guilt, you know, and it, and it does, feel, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're, no one's talking about this to make anyone feel guilty. Um, it's, it's about making us feel responsible. Guilt is a worthless emotion. Responsibility is where you want to go, right? Mm-hmm. Like, what can we do to make it better? And, and you know, channeling it into efforts like banning chokeholds, def- you know, cutting the police budget so that it can go to, I think we should talk about not just defunding police, but what are we funding with it? Right. And, and, and I think that's part of the equation, uh, you know, funding schools in a more profound way, uh, making sure people have enough to eat, you know, just making sure we have a, a, a safer, uh, place for everybody yeah. to live. Yeah. And we yeah. get to have that conversation now. Yeah. You know what we I do. mean? Um, we were talking yesterday about, um, the work that DeRay McKesson is doing with Eight Can't Wait mm-hmm. and uh, Campaign Zero. And he's very much about, you know, data-driven solutions to to the police force and, and you know, what's required to, you know, in a very tactical way to deconstruct some of these practices that are leading to the harms and the results that we're seeing right now. And I think um, a broader conversation about, you know, where this money is going so that we can redress homelessness and we can redress, you know, everything from college debt to mental health. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if there was a uh, social worker in that police car in Minneapolis also to deal with the first car, the first mm-hmm. car that showed up, to deal with someone who was, who was um, struggling and didn't want to get into that car because he was claustrophobic – um, if there was someone, and the same is true all the way down the line. If there's, if there is a, a mental health first responder in a car with a policeman, what does that do? Mm-hmm. Who does that benefit? It's not going to just benefit the these these victim would be victims of of police violence. It's going to benefit the cop as well. It benefits everybody because now you don't have that on your conscience, on your soul. So yeah. I mean, I think these ideas of if incorporating mental health into policing or into the way we protect one another. Because it's not just protecting the neighborhood, it's protecting one another, right? Yeah. Just to be clear, I'm not anti-police. No. You know, I'm not, there are plenty of amazing police officers and first responders and, and you know, all the, all the kind of, you know, people that we need to, you know, keep society, you know, on the right track. Um, but I do resist the bad apple narrative. Like there's a lot of talk about bad apples and certainly there are bad apples, but what we saw with with George Floyd was, was and I said this yesterday, like it was so brazen, right? Oh, yeah. And the, the casualness with which that harm was perpetrated, that murder, um, and, you know, the fact that there were the other officers who were, who were just standing by and doing nothing speaks to a greater systemic issue that needs to get redressed. And I think that, 
you know, I'm sure it's, you know, community-based, but the bar to becoming a police officer, I feel like needs to be raised. Like you don't become a Navy SEAL until you go through BUDS, right? right? You go through rigorous training to become somebody who's capable uh, of handling high-stress situations uh, that could potentially escalate and be violent. Yeah. And I would like to see more rigorous standards around who be, who gets to become a police officer. These are people who are putting themselves in harm's way on the daily. Yeah. And with that comes anxiety and stress and post-traumatic stress and all these you know mental issues. And we want those people to be mentally, emotionally, and spiritually fit to handle those situations, to understand what's required to avoid excessive force or lethal force when at all possible. And that, you know, it, it, it's common sense that that requires better training. When we're seeing what's happening right now, it speaks to a lack of understanding and training around these skill sets that are crucial. Yeah, I mean, this, the, the idea of when a crisis hits, does your pulse rate go up or does it go down? You know, we want people whose pulse rates go down, who mm-hmm. can who can stay on task in the midst of 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 trying circumstances and aren't afraid of them. And uh, and if they are afraid, don't act. It's okay not to act. Sometimes it's okay to pull back. Um, you know, the fact that we have lost someone um, because he spent a counterfeit twenty dollar bill um, is is repulsive. You know, the fact that like that he was even dealt with in any physical way mm-hmm. when you could just write a ticket for something like that is ridiculous. Yeah. So it's like it's it's um that that goes into the training of of exerting a physical will on another human being. There should be limits on when we do that. That should be a last resort, not a first resort in my opinion. But, you know, um I think that if we think about George Floyd and, and, and going back, and you're talking about the news cycle earlier, and I wanted to ask you a question about this, but um, you know, first we have this long, really boring pre-apocalypse moment with, the, with everyone staying at home right. with the pandemic, right? And everyone's kind of at home, and it seems like, oh, wow, you know, we're looking at, at videos of dolphins we're coming into- sourdough bread. Right, we're making sourdough bread. Yeah. It's like, it's this long kind of like, kind of- low key type thing and then overnight the it's it flips but it started not with george but it started with ahmad arbery of and course. and um we want for me you know i'm a runner like you i'm not like you i'm not a runner like you yeah you are <laughs> i'm a runner also i got a back injury now i'm, I'm sidelined from running for yeah, there, a little bit now I'm so a you're actually like you. <laughs> running more than i am but um but ahmad i mean very personal like during Mm -hmm. during uh where i live in santa monica the beach path was closed so i start running into these neighborhoods and i'm running into you know tax brackets that i don't belong in and i never once felt unsafe Mm -hmm. doing it and uh or like that it wasn't that it wasn't okay um and then we had amon arbery and what what did you you know i know you posted that great uh video on your instagram but uh, I just wonder what you think of now, because who would have thought then, and now it leads to this, but it is part of the part of what's happened. I mean, that was the first. Yeah, think, the first these things. Thing yeah, there there is a domino effect yeah. here, and it and 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 this episode that we're seeing began with a mod, and um, it's horrific in every regard. And I think you know, 
to the point of looking at my own behavior around this, I feel like I didn't speak up around that at that time. You know, I, w- I was late to the party on that in terms of um, putting words together in the public conversation around mm. it. And I should have done that, you know, as a runner, as somebody who could identify, you know, with that aspect of who that human being was. It's unbelievably tragic. And in reflecting upon that, um, you know, it's very clear. My privilege becomes very clear because I've run all over the world. Mm-hmm. I've run, you know, not just the trails around my house, but I've had the privilege of traveling to lots of different places. And whatever hotel I'm staying in, my favorite thing when I go to a new city is just to put on my running shoes and run around it. And never once did I ever think I'm putting myself in harm's way, no matter where I am. Yeah. And when I posted that the other day, there were some snarky comments like, well, that's because, you know, you're not running through Watts and you're not running through Compton. We have an apartment downtown because my daughter goes to a high school uh, right next to downtown. And that apartment is around the corner from Skid Row. And I make a point of running through Skid Row mm-hmm. on purpose because I want to see what's going on there. And I've never felt threat. In fact, people, when I run through Skid Row for the most part, and I've said this before, people are nicer to me than they are out on the trail. Like when I'm out on the trail and I wave to somebody and they don't wave back, I'm like, what the fuck, right? <laughs> I run through Skid Row and I'm giving high fives to these people who live in tents. Mm. And, you know, that's, you know, a potentially dangerous neighborhood. Now, you know, yeah, no, I'm not running through Compton every day or anything like that. Like, I understand that's a different thing, but the the point is that I don't have to th- think about that or worry about that. And I've been pulled over by the cops so many times in my lifetime. When I was, you know, a, uh, out of control alcoholic, I got pulled over for DUI mm. tons of times. Never once, um, not only was I not afraid of anything happening to me by the cop, I got let off like tons of times when I should have gone to jail or mm. been arrested mm. so many times. And, you know, I've run in the Middle East. I've run, like, I've, I've run all over the place. And I've run through, you know, I've run through Beirut, Lebanon and weird neighborhoods and, you know, places where, you know, I'm, I am the minority and never thought once about like my own personal safety. Oh. Because it's not the law enforcement apparatus isn't geared towards you, right. and that whataboutism is is kind of people again not wanting to listen because it's hard to hear. You know, I mean, I think you you talked about David Goggins. Um, you know, obviously, I've, I I I uh, right when we work. were giving your CV at the beginning, yeah. we left out like the <laughs> that you you were in cooperation partnership with David wrote his book Can't Hurt Me, which is still like the number one book in the world. It's crazy, <laughs> and you did the audio book with him. Yeah, as yeah, well. I narrated an audio book, yeah. and um, I mean, his he's such a masterful storyteller. The way he tells his story, but one thing he is not afraid to do is look at himself with a micro with a mm-hmm. microscope and. Um, and talk to himself in a way that's real. And, you know, the, the, the approach that you want to take when, when people are telling you something isn't, well, what about this? What about that? Is to listen and to look into yourself before you say, what about, what about? Mm-hmm. I mean, like a great example of, of systemic racism in this country is, um, you know, we remember when all the gunmen came around the Michigan State House, the guys with the AR-15s yeah, yeah. and all that. And, and people were talking about, you know, um, 
if that was uh, people of color, if those were black men, um, it would have been uh, National Guard. They would have right. been arrested, all that. It got me to think of uh, California gun laws because, you know, California has one of the best uh, gun control measures in the United States. And do you know who passed those gun laws? No, who? Reagan. In the 1960s, Reagan was governor, and he passed those gun laws with the full cooperation and support of the NRA because Black Panthers did try to come to the state capitol with guns Mm. to do a demonstration. The guns were removed, and they still came, and they stormed the capitol, and they were able to break into the actual floor of of the state house while while legislation was going on, Um, legislative session was going on, and then those people were arrested. and then soon after that, they uh, actually passed gun control measures in, in California. It wasn't Democrats who passed those measures. It was Reagan mm. with the full cooperation of the NRA. There's no real better episode from history to show you that we couldn't even pass gun control measures in this country after Sandy Hook. Mm-hmm. Um, so that just shows you kind of like how the system is played out and, and lean, you know, as much as anything, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah it shows you how, it's, how, how it tilts. Another interesting wrinkle to uh, the issue of guns when you look at the Second Amendment and the intention behind that, which was to empower the people to rise up against a corrupt government. Yeah. Now we're seeing... Yeah. The, the deployment by the government of basically a private militarized police force, mm-hmm. which is the very thing that the founding fathers had in mind in terms of ensuring that the people would be able to resist just such a thing. But the people who are the most supportive and vocal about gun rights and the NRA are the ones who are the most supportive of the despotic move by the government right now. Yeah. And there's an inherent irony in that, which is, you know, kind of amazing. It's so weird. You know, I was watching, uh, my wife is six months pregnant, so I've been very careful during quarantine and not, um, have not attended the uh, the demonstrations, not out of a lack of wanting to be there, but just out of being super mm-hmm. careful. Um, and it's really exciting to see how many, everyone is an activist now. I've been in and around activism, uh, mostly in the environmental side for, you know, most of my adult life. And to see everyone become an activist is very exciting and to want to be there. But that first, I was watching it very intently as it started unfolding in Los Angeles that first Saturday around Fairfax. And there was no looting in Los Angeles, especially around Fairfax and Melrose, until the cops oriented all their attention around the peaceful protesters and started hitting them with batons. Mm-hmm. That's when the first glass started to break. I mean, that's mm-hmm. just the facts. And in Santa Monica, it was a very similar story, right. how it played out. Um, and when I was watching the looting uh, at first, it was hard to watch. You know, you don't want to watch that. You know, you feel really badly for business owners because of what they've had to, you know, to endure with quarantine. Yeah, 100%. And, 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 and so you feel terrible about that. Nobody wants to see that. But at the same time, like 24 hours later, I, I started having a totally different view on the looting. And, and that view is that's what no justice, no peace means. It doesn't just mean 100,000 people marching down Hollywood Boulevard peace, peacefully. It doesn't mean just sitting in front of the mayor's house. That's part of it. But it also means like if, you, if we can't create a more just society where everyone has a fair shot, everyone has a fair shake, um, 
then we are going, that's what no justice, no peace means. Mm. And uh, it means that there is going to be times where it's going to blow up. The frustration is going to boil over um, and allow other people, opportunists or not, um, to get involved and, and, and loot. And so I think if we look at it, that again, the hard truths, that is a hard truth. Um, we, we created that moment by allowing this frustration to build and build and build. That's not something that happened because of them. It's not a them, them. Like it's, well, you it's have a, to back it up yeah. and look at the seed. Yeah. You know, what, you know this, this germinated out of these other events. Like you have to look at it from a global perspective. And, you know, listen, uh, there, look, there, that's certainly true. At the same time, there are other people who are just opportunistically out there yeah. looting who don't give a shit about no justice, no peace. They're just like, oh, the cops are distracted. I can go break into Nordstrom right now. And totally, but then why, why are the but, police so focused on peaceful right. protesters? Why don't you just let people that, march and protect? That whole situation right. was yeah. created right. because of the events that unfolded, of Yeah, course. and, and yeah. the strategy of orienting your peacekeeping around the peaceful protesters mm-hmm. versus around, okay, let's just let them march and just protect the buildings. Yeah. <laughs> and then nobody gets hurt. And there's no, no, nobody's throwing bottles at anybody. Right. You know, right. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's choices that are made over and over again. If you go back to the Michael Brown incident in Ferguson, when people were, were really pissed off in the streets and, and even in Minneapolis, people were pissed off in the streets. And I thought, let people be pissed off in the streets, especially now during quarantine. No one's trying to get anywhere. Right. So, like, let people be pissed off in the streets. If you start to try to control that, it's going to blow up. Mm-hmm. I mean, it doesn't take brain surgery. But yeah, some, yeah. for some reason, yeah. it's built in. People in the streets are a problem. We have to try to control problems as opposed to just let it run its course. Right. Yeah. There was a sense um, when Ferguson happened that that was going to be a tipping moment. Yeah. That was 2014. Uh, it and was not. It wasn't. Right, and and I will admit that when the protest began in Minneapolis, that I couldn't have predicted that it would catch fire and sweep the nation in the way that it that it did. No, me neither. I called my friend Brogan Graham, who lives in Minneapolis, um, after the first night of protests, to check in with him. He lives right in the middle of where all that was going on, and during that conversation, we were just talking, and he was telling me, you know, the experience of being essentially at ground zero for that. But never once during that conversation did I think that this was going, that these protests were going to start happening um, in essentially every city and community across America and now overseas. It's crazy. It's a, it's, it's very, that's what's exciting about it, right? That's the excitement that everyone now is, is keyed into this, uh, this real, this, this other virus that is white supremacy and wanting to tackle it. Um, But at the same time, look at Arab Spring. Mm. Um, I mean, not to be not to be a downer on this, but I because I can see anything happening from here on out. I could see Trump losing fifty of fifty states. Yeah, there's nothing off the table nothing right now. Off the table, you, you can know. go from Trump losing fifty of fifty um, to him or winning to winning in a landslide. Yeah, who yeah, knows? Yeah. yeah. I mean, who knows? I would doubt a landslide, but he yeah. could certainly squeak out a victory. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but um, but Arab Spring like is a perfect cautionary tale. Um, it, Maybe there's maybe Tunisia came out of Arab Spring okay and did better, uh, but but of all of the countries, I think every every single one regressed. And look at Syria. So it, it's um, we have to continue. You know, we ha- you're talking about eight can't wait. You know, 
what would you suggest your listeners do? Like, what would do you have um, advice on on what to do if, if you if you're not if in addition to protesting or if you haven't protested things that you can do? Do you did you guys discuss that yesterday? Yeah, a little bit, and I've been doing a lot of thinking about this. I mean, I think that that um, I'm sympathetic on some level to the predicament of the white person in figuring out how to how to how to put you know whatever they're feeling into you know a productive channel right now mm-hmm. i think there's a lot of people who are hesitant to say anything because they're not sure what the right thing to say is and like myself they don't want to say the wrong thing and so there's a paralysis yeah. that happens with that where you're like well you know i don't really you know this is this is you know i i should take a back seat here and let you know the black leaders lead the charge here but you know there's a narrative that this this problem is like going back to what Tony Morrison said like this is a white problem yeah. and it's incumbent upon the white people to fix it and that's going to require all of us to look inward and take stock and inventory of our own behavior change doesn't happen without inter- personal change and interpersonal change, right? Yeah. So we have to be fearless in our interpersonal own self. Cha- interpersonal change, which starts with interpersonal exactly. change. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, Right. Yeah. Like yeah. you've got to reflect inward and do an honest and open and objective inventory on your own behavior. And that's what I'm attempting to do right now. And with that comes a responsibility with how you interact with other human beings on the one-on-one and then on public forums like Twitter and Facebook and the like. Um and that means being open to new ideas, being open to challenging your worldview about your own personal relationship with race. Mm. You know, being um, you know courageous enough to you know read the books like how to how to be an anti-racist mm-hmm. or watching the documentaries and um, you know entertaining perspectives that might be different or uncomfortable for yourself. You know, I think that, you know, there's no other, there's no way around that. Like it has to begin with ourselves and our relationship to ourselves and our own, you know, mining our own, you know, consciousness to try to peel back the layers on, on, you know, our, our own interpersonal history with race. How do you do that? Do you, have you, have you just, is it something that you just do, like you meditate on it? Do you journal about it? Have you been just talking to, uh, you know, Julie or other friends or how, how is that manifested for you? I mean, it's, you know, I'm talking to a lot of friends, you know, I, I, I will admit also that, you know, I, I was, you know, I was hesitant in how I communicate publicly about this because I didn't want to get it wrong. And I had a sense of that paralysis and I did want to take a beat to like learn and listen. Um, and I think my sense is that, um, there's a white fear about how the black community is going to respond to what a white person has to say about this. Especially in, but, in the public eye. You but mean? the more um, African-Americans that I speak to, they're waiting for those white voices. Like they're, they want um, you know, the white people to come forward and acknowledge what is happening mm. right now and to, um, and to give voice to their, openness for entertaining new solutions right yeah. now. So 
Um, I'm trying to have those conversations. I am trying to listen, but I'm also trying to responsibly message around that to encourage everybody to find, you know, their way of being part of the solution. And I think that's going to depend on your own psychological makeup as well, right? Like yeah. not everybody is the person who's going to take to the streets with a sign, but we all have, um, you know, people in our lives and we have choices around how we communicate with them about these issues. I think that that's interesting because I love how you said the interpersonal is an interpersonal. The, in this kind of thing, yes, you can journal, you can, you can write it all out if that's your thing, but also interpersonal can be, can open the door to the interpersonal. Mm -hmm. If you have someone you, right. you trust that you want to talk about these issues with, it could be really valuable to get on the phone with someone and just talk them out mm -hmm. and be completely honest, be completely raw, um, and and be unafraid of what comes from it, uh, because that's how you purge it, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's 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 interesting. I think it's you know for those that are on social media, it's also about you know seeking out the the people of color and the the variety of voices that are available to you yeah. and making the choice to follow those and yeah. to pay attention to what those people are saying. Like break out of your silo yeah. that's comfortable for you, and you know seek out the people that are giving voice to this in a different way, even if that challenges your own personal worldview. Hundred percent. I remember. Uh a book that was that kind of politicized me in a deep, deep way when I was uh, 20 years old was the autobiography, autobiography of Malcolm X, mm -hmm. um, which is the original kind of how to be an anti-racist right. tome. And it's uh, written by Alex Haley. Uh, I think the best ghostwritten book ever. It's I an think, incredible uh, book. Probably the best memoir, American memoir ever. Um I, I think that's a good place to start. You mm -hmm. know, I, I haven't actually seen that on some of these reading lists that are popular. Yeah, it's interesting. It, I, I've it, noticed that as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But to me, that like, and and at the same time, I used to read a lot. Like when I was twenty, twenty one, twenty two, this I was I read about COINTELPRO, which was this and you know CIA, FBI, local law enforcement um, apparatus that was set up to crush the civil rights movement, especially the Black Power movement. Um, I I read all about that. I have not been reading about that voraciously as I grow grew older. Mm. I've gotten comfortable on knowing what I knew and feeling like I'm a pretty good person and um you know and that was good enough. Um even even with Ferguson happening, even with all these horrible things happening, I've not skewed my life towards getting involved in police uh brutality issues mm -hmm. or violence. Um you know I haven't so, uh, you know, that's, that's my personal failing too. Right. So, and that's from somebody who I care about these issues a lot. You know, I've, I've been studying these issues for a long, long time. Um, so, you know, we're, we all have a lot of work to do because we don't want this to be Arab spring 2.0. Right. You know, we do want to end up with a 50, 50 kind of landslide and victory. And, and most important, we don't want our brothers and sisters getting killed in the streets anymore. hundred percent. Yeah. hundred uh, percent. Well, the one thing we can all do is we can vote. And I have concerns about what's going to happen in November, Talk right? If the pandemic and coronavirus, you know, continue at their current rate, or we see a second wave, like, listen, you know, we were we were joking about this before the podcast, um, and this speaks to our own, my own, you know, cognitive biases. 
when I saw videos of people partying at Lake of the Ozarks, what was that, like 10 days ago when right. those videos were going around, I remember feeling outraged. Like, how could these people do this? This is so irresponsible. They're just gonna contribute to the spread of this virus. Fast forward to two days ago or three days ago or whatever it is, and you see this drone footage above Hollywood Boulevard and it's just you know packed with thousands and thousands of people mm. and my heart was full. Mm. And I thought, what a beautiful, amazing thing. And yet, in the context of coronavirus, that's perhaps the worst possible thing <laughs> that anybody could do. You know, <laughs> right. and, and it's like, did we just decide that the coronavirus isn't a thing anymore? I, I think what it is, is there's a hierarchy of concerns and needs, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. When we're thinking about our own personal welfare, we wanna sequester, we're wearing the masks, we're doing the social distancing, but when a problem's so acute and so demanding of immediate redress and voice, we will take to the streets. And there's something that makes that extra inspirational, but also worrisome in terms of the inevitable spike in coronavirus cases that we will undoubtedly see unfolding over the next couple of weeks. And what is that, how does that bode in terms of what's gonna happen come November? We have this huge election on the horizon. There's so much unrest right now. There are so many questions um, that are being asked about what America means for the people and in the eyes of the world. Mm. And we're gonna cast a vote and decide. And if that, um, if we're in a situation in which people can't access the ballot box or there's certain measures in place that, are, that provide a chilling effect on that, that's gonna lead to greater social unrest. And if whoever wins doesn't win by a significant margin, we're gonna see potentially greater unrest around uh, you know, campaign malfeasance that could literally lead to the undoing of our country. Like I, I'm deeply concerned about that. On top of that, we have this problem of, of weaponized social media and fake news. Yeah. I would have hoped that in the wake of what we saw with the 2016 election, that we would have figured out how to get a handle on this. Mm -hmm. But instead, all we've seen is a, a uh, an explosion, a mushroom cloud in the impact of how the media functions on the psyche of the American voter. Um, and I, I despair the more that I think about that because I don't see a solution to this problem. I see it only being fomented at an exponential rate. And I think that that means that it's incumbent upon all of us to um, be as active as we possibly can and to make sure that our voices are being heard and to be, you know, on that, on that inner, you know, that, that personal inward journey to, you know, challenge the edifice of our own information diets to break out of those silos and to make sure that we're empowering ourselves with the best, most vetted education possible. Yeah, I mean, I think anything can happen, just like you said. This is we're at, we're at the crux of either we're going to go into uh, it's not going to be status quo no matter what. It's mm -hmm. either going to be a perverted version of the last four years with Trump, even worse, or it's going to be 
uh, some reimagining of America, which is a, a beautiful thing, but it might be messy at times, but it, it's a very cool opportunity. Like, I feel like we're at this opportunity. We haven't been since Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was running for president in mm -hmm. 1968. And of course, Martin Luther King and he and him were killed very, very close together. And everything went kind of the, the nadir came and, and the advancement that we were all hoping for mm -hmm. the pullout of I mean, we, I wasn't alive yet, but right. you know, I studied it. Um, America didn't get out of the war. They doubled down. Uh, we didn't get better. We, we did slide back. And now you have this same moment. But the good mm. thing about it is that people are so politicized that even in a pandemic, they are marching shoulder to shoulder. Right, that's the uplifting right. aspect of and this. And so like, thing. people will turn out. I don't think people are gonna be afraid to vote because I think we're gonna remember all those people marching in the streets. I don't, I don't think people will be afraid to vote. I think we will vote. Um, and Trump's gonna lie anyway. I mean, no matter how he loses, he's gonna lie mm -hmm. about it. Uh, whether whether he, if he loses fifty out of fifty, it's almost worse. The lie might even be more believable to some people. Be <laughs> like, how could I lose fifty states? How could I right. lose all these red states? They love me in Texas, you know that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so I think we can't be worried about that. That's just inevitable. That's like the sun coming up in, right. the, in the morning. He's going to lie. Um, but what's interesting is in this reimagining of America that I think, because another uh, great read that I haven't seen people talk about is The Case for Reparations, which is um, Ta-Nehisi Coates' mm. uh, essay from The Atlantic right. that kind of launched him in terms of being a public intellectual. Um, and I th we're seeing the first we're seeing the first bits of reparations. The Kentucky governor has extended health care coverage to all black residents. Mm. Um we're starting to see these little bits of, of what America could be coming out of this. Uh, and, and so that's exciting. You know, that's yeah. very exciting. But you're right. There's a lot of work to do. This is just the beginning of something like you had said to me earlier today, not, the, not nearly the end. It's the, just the barely the beginning. Yeah. And I, I think on top of that, you know, the, the, there's always this push with every election cycle. Like we got to get the young people out to vote. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, it's all about like trying to, um, you know, marshal that sector of the population to get them to the ballot box. And they never do, right? Like no matter what, it's always, you know, it's like whether it's MTV, you know, whoever's pushing this, like the young people still don't do it. But I feel like now they are. Yeah. Like I've never seen young people more energized around anything in a civic manner like they are right now. Agreed. And I think that that is super encouraging. Agreed. I think that's to see this level of politicization and and knowledge of it, and to see it in, pop up in video, viral videos from like Whitefish, Montana, mm -hmm. um, small towns in Mississippi. Um, that's why I think the fifty to for fifty thing is in play. Losing fifty is is in play for Trump mm -hmm. because I'm seeing stuff I've never seen before. Um, but it's going to take. Uh, concerted effort and people are doing it. You know, there's there's yeah. all sorts of efforts. To, I would love to see McConnell get kicked on his mm. on his yeah. rear end out yeah. of town. Uh, there's lots of stuff that are in play now that we would never would have thought before because of this incredible moment that we're in. What's also interesting is the power of the moving image and how mm. that plays into all of this. Mm. You know, the most impactful filmmaking that's happening right now in the world is happening on the cell phone. Mm -hmm. These moments that are getting captured 
whether it's you know uh, what we saw with George Floyd or what we saw with the Buffalo you know police officer that knocked over the elderly man, or even with you know the white the white kids that are looting you know the Nordstrom or mm-hmm. you know Patty setting Donia fires and all that kind of, whatever it is like this is all you know playing into how we're grappling with how to think about these issues in such a powerful way because they just get shared. The, 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 the manner of distribution has become so democratized that it doesn't matter that the movie theaters are closed. Mm. You know what I mean? Like we are being fed uh, these images so in such a, uh, you know, in, in like this waterfall of information and we're trying to figure out how to process all of this and then determine a path forward for this country at a very you know interesting time. Like this is, we are living in a truly historic moment right yeah. now. I mean, it's partly because the movie theaters are closed. It's because mm-hmm. no one's going right. to work. It's because of, I mean, I don't think the crowds would be this big. You know, there would be some crowds. I mean, Occupy Wall Street happened when everyone was working, but like it, it wouldn't be to this level if there wasn't this many people available. Right. Um, so it's almost because of it, in yeah. my opinion. And but that's how that's how history happens, right? It's like multiple crazy things all happening in the confluence of one time and place. Right. That's how. That's what makes history. Yeah. Yeah. And to think, like, think back to. New Year's Eve, right? And we're all thinking about what's going to happen in 2020. Nobody could have ever imagined that we would be in this position. It's quite remarkable. It and, is. It is. I mean, I'm going to have a, my wife's going to have our first kid in September. What's the due date? September, September 10th. Yeah. And, um, you know, we've been having a fine time. We've been staying very close to home and it's all good. But, um, and she's handling this like a rock star. She's yeah. not like poor meing at all. And I'm built, I'm built to find the higher ground. I'm built to keep it simple. Like it's very easy for me to find the good in, in, in any moment and what I can do to make my life, uh, great on a daily basis. I'm just kind of, I've done some work on in that area and I'm, I'm built for that. But when this started to blow up with George Floyd at first, when we first saw his video, it's very sad. You know, mm. you think about um, bringing somebody into the world, uh, into this world, uh, the way we have it set up. It was very sad. You know, mm-hmm. we were both sad about it. Um, and now, like a week or two later, I'm I'm excited. Hmm. You know, like... I'm stoked to be bringing another person into this world because we could make it better. Like we can become like a Scandinavian, like an American version of of this social democracy. We can have like um, affordable public school. I mean, great great public schools and affordable daycare and affordable preschools, maybe even free preschools that set people up. We can Mm. um, democratize nutrition to the point where we have better food for more people. We can do all those things. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's so interesting because even though I studied this before and I've heard it from friends um, who have been kind of had to have to deal with white supremacy their whole lives, the key really is now. I mean, the, the, the thread is loose. And if we pull that thread and we eradicate that one thread that's just been woven into everything, mm-hmm. um, 
maybe that is the antidote, like pulling yeah. that thread. Maybe that is what's going to take to become a better version of ourselves. And I mean, look at the NFL, look at the commission NFL now, right. the guy who was like anti-Kaepernick is now publicly saying he's with the players. I mean, I personally, you can read that in a number of ways. You can read that as a political move, mm-hmm. but, um, but you have to, the whole point of activism is to change people's minds. So to me, that's a win. And uh, it's I, a small win. It's a small win, yeah, but it's, I mean, it's, it was it's definitely political. It's political, but it, but you, you know, you do this for a reason and you don't do it to get people to change their minds and then shame them. You do mm-hmm. it to ch- change people's minds. That's a key yeah, thing yeah, here. Yeah, yeah. You know, like we have to allow people to grow and change. Yeah. And we're in this cancel culture where we're holding people accountable for things that they said and they did very much in the past. Yeah. We have to provide people with a path to redemption. And we have to allow people to, we have to celebrate those wins, right? Mm. When people are able to make those shifts rather than continue to harp on the thing that they did in the past. I think that's a healthy you know, way to, to, to go forward right now. Um, and it's so interesting to think about like the hullabaloo over Kaepernick when that was happening in comparison to what we're seeing right now and how relevant that remains to be. Yeah. I mean, you know? what a hero that guy is. It's crazy. You know? yeah, right? yeah. 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 It's unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And then there was the videos going around, which I didn't know, like the guy who inspired him to take a knee in the first place yeah. was like a green beret, I didn't like a know white that green beret guy who was like telling his version of that story and yeah. how it all came to be. Because he asked what would be a respectful way of doing it. And the mm. green beret said, Neil. Right. Yeah. So he was trying to <laughs> do it the right way. I know. He wasn't even trying to be, yeah. um, he, yes, he was trying to re- make a mm-hmm. point, but he knew, I mean, he's very smart. So he yeah. knew it was going to cause. Of course. Yeah, he knew. He knew. Um, well, one more thing I want to talk yep. about before we we round this down. You're talking about having a child, and um, you know I've got four kids, and there was a question that came in about you know how how my kids are doing through all of this. You know, it's my it's been a very interesting time, and I've got a 12 year old daughter. My youngest turns 13 today. It's her birthday today. Happy uh, birthday, happy birthday, Jaya. Jaya. And you know, I look at her, and I think about. What, what the world is gonna be like for her when she's 30, 40 years old. Um, you know, what is the psychological imprint that's happening right now? And how is that going to be manifest in a society that exists when I'm long gone, right? Corona kids, like what is, you know, she hasn't been able to see any friends right. and we've been homeschooling her. Like she's gone through this period where She's been incredibly socially isolated. Like, what is the impact of that? And on top of that, um, I can tell you from the perspective of my kids, you know, Jai's turning 13, Mathis is 16, our boys are 23 and 25. They're so politically up to speed on everything by dint of social media. Social mm. media's got a lot of problems, especially with young girls, and that's a whole other podcast. But one thing, one, one thing that it is serving them well in is, is, is how informed they are about what's happening and how not only are they aware of what's going on, like they, they are fully briefed on all the arguments about why <laughs> things should be a certain way. And when I reflect back on what I was doing when I was 13 or 16, I can tell you 
that the conversations that I was having with my friends were not around civil rights and no. social justice no. and the like. No. And that gives me great hope. That doesn't mean that this hasn't been a challenging time for them, but I think there is a there's a um, there's a there's sort of this chrysalis moment, like they're being forged for lives of purpose, mm. and these seeds of you know what is right and what is wrong and what should the world look like um, are are being kind of like fertilized at the moment, mm -hmm. and I think that's happening all across the world. Yeah, and this and this doesn't have to be a scary like this new America, this new future that we're imagining right now together. Um, it can be beneficial for everybody, you know. I think that's what we, what, what we want to keep in mind is like I've seen some stuff online saying losing your privilege will feel like oppression. Um, so, but don't be afraid. And I, I I don't feel like that's actually true. I feel like how I don't even understand that. Well, the, the idea is right. Like the idea is that I think I've seen online is uh, if you if you freely give up your white privilege, it'll mean you get less or something. But I don't agree with that idea. I think that I think that what we want to do is create a, a place where everyone can have a better life and everyone will benefit. Right. So I don't think um, there should be any fear of like you know, losing your station in society or any of that mm -hmm. bullshit, you know, like, you know, there is, there is only us, you know, it's like a team. It's like, we're, we're, we've, we haven't been behaving like a very good team. Right. It's been a fractured team, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. but we really actually yeah. are on a team. And it would uh, be nice if we had some leadership, if we had a coach right. um, that could unify us a little bit. <clears throat> well, that's where, that's where old Joe comes yeah. in, I guess. <laughs> 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 yeah. <laughs> Good old Joe. Right. Oh, Joe. <laughs> Joe. He's what we got. Um, I hear you, brother. Wouldn't it be funny if Bernie, I mean, it would be great. If Bernie was around here, he'd be he'd be screaming at the cameras somewhere. Oh, my Lord. Yeah, it's amazing that we don't have him actually talking about I it. I know. But, yeah. I know. And, you know, there's all different, you know, I think, I, I think also it's interesting how relevant some of the things that Andrew Yang was talking about. Yeah. It's like UBI, like the, this is the moment. Like yeah. he was ahead of the curve and bringing that into public awareness. Absolutely. That's a real conversation that we should be having and entertaining right we, now. We've and got we, it. I mean, yeah. people are getting checks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He actually right. predicted it. Right. Yeah. 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 But we need to, I think we need to institutionalize that in a real way, right? not just this one check. Right. And say we've dealt with it. I mean, certainly that that's not the case. No, no, no. Yeah. No, no. There needs to be more um effort but um cool man that's good right. well, I don't, I think, i'm not sure if we if we asked you a lot of these reader <laughs> well what was funny is uh yeah so <laughs> here's the thing um we started this with the idea of doing a and ask me anything i went on the facebook group and said i'm going to be doing this and there were like you know over 100 yep. comments and yep. adam dutifully went through all of them and created a spreadsheet and i said to you like we're there's, i'm so long-winded we're only going to be able to answer like two or three of these but the truth is like, we have to talk about what's going on right now. So I understand and realize we didn't get to, uh, we, I think we answered two questions yep. out of this, but um, I think this went well. How do you feel? Oh yeah, it was, was great, good, man. man. This is, it's, it's, so I think we're gonna be doing this. We're gonna try to figure out a way to do this on the regular. Yep. And, um, and that way we can sort of, you know, begin the process of, of working through the questions that you, that you want answered. And this is something that, that I wanna do more of. The podcast, 
obviously has historically been about putting a spotlight on the guest. Mm. Um, it's not about me. Um, but as I discussed in my my conversation with James Altucher, like he's, he, and I think he's correct, like there is a place on this show to have looser conversations where, you know, I can share some of my insights and there seems to be an interest in doing that. So I want to serve that. And we'll absolutely, do we'll do this more. And are the show notes, are you going to um, direct people to different uh, things they can do reading or, or yeah, I'm gonna, I, I think I'm, I'll put some, I'll put some effort into the show notes and try to provide some, some resources, uh, so that people can broaden their horizons and their mm. perspectives. A friend of mine sent me a Google doc that had tons of amazing stuff on it. Um, so I might just, perfect. Um, put a link so other people can access that same document, which is basically like a syllabus with yeah. all of these links and books and documents, et cetera. Um, and I think that would probably do the trick for now. Perfect. All right, man. Well, you want to come back and do this again with me? Hell yeah. All right, cool. Let's do it. All right. Um, Let's talk about sprouts. Awesome. Yeah. <laughs> talk about sprouts. It's funny because I did a podcast with an environmentalist uh, the other day and- just any talking about anything other than what's going on right now just feels yes. awkward and wrong. It's tough. It's you know? tough to get anything yeah. done either. You know, you're and just yet like, oh, you're we're wrong. still in the midst yeah. of a, a global climate emergency. It's awesome. not like you know that went away. No. So it is important to also talk about other things, but you can't do that unless you're also engaged in what's happening right now. Agreed. So, and this is the this is the moment that could unlock a lot of solutions if we if we let it if we follow if we walk through the door together. Mm. Yeah. Well, other than cooking a new baby, yeah. What else you got going on? Are you working on any long pieces, or what are you writing right now? I am. I've been working on. I've been wrestling with this novel that I've been wanting to write mm. for a long, long time, and um, and so I'm I'm almost done with the very first raw draft of that, and then working on a nonfiction project, kind of at the same time. Yeah. Um, I can't announce anything about it yet, but. Um, uh, so I've kind of been doing those two, researching a little bit of nonfiction and doing this, um, writing this novel. And then uh, when stories come through, they come through. I, I, the most recent thing I did um, journalism-wise was uh, a story on surfing during the pandemic mm. um, for New York Times Sports. You also did a story on the wall. For, I did a story on the outside. On, uh, yeah, that was outside. That was in November, late late November last year, I think it came out. Mm -hmm. I went down to Tucson. Um and was there when they were building the first pieces of the wall through um, preserved, you know, national park land. Right. So it was national, through the lens yeah. of the environmental impact of the environmental this, impact yeah. on cutting off uh, wildlife corridors and the environmental impact of the wall. Because basically, what's been happening in there, you know, while this protests have been happening, he actually expanded these powers of the federal government to waive the Endangered Species Act, Clean Water Act, Clean Air Act. Um, uh, 21, I think it was, environmental laws were waived with the stroke of Trump's pen. Um, and that became legal because of a very obscure law, which, uh, which was passed during the W. Bush years, mm. um, basically as a budget writer. And so that, that it was buried in, in, as a budget writer in this bill that passed easily. And Trump is the first to use it to sweeping, sweep away environmental laws to build, and he did it to build the wall. Right. But just recently, he did it to build anything. So mm. now you can; those same laws have been waived uh, for construction projects in cities across the country mm. on infrastructure stuff. Right. It's it's a it's a bit of a sleight of hand because there's so much unrest right now. Yep. But behind the scenes, 
there are measures being taken like this that are erased from the news cycle that he is able to accomplish and get away with because we're our attention is placed elsewhere. Exactly. So you always watch what that other hand's doing. Luckily, there are lawyers that do watch that. Mm. There are lawsuits. Um, I mean, obviously, the, the, the wall is being built. That's happening right now. Um, but the more recent measure of, I think it was last week, uh, those will be challenged in court. Um, so no reason to panic just yet, but it just shows you where they're where the mind of this administration is. Yeah. And it's not, it's not for the benefit of everybody. Yeah. You talked to Goggins lately? Uh, I haven't spoken with him lately. Uh, I speak with Gen- I spoke with Jennifer more recently, uh-huh. but I have not spoken with him lately. Uh, but yeah, he... Um, he blew out his knee or it, something, Yeah, it right? looks like he blew out his right. knee. Yeah. But I ain't yeah. stopping him. No. <laughs> no. He's walking on his hands on the I treadmill. Saw, I saw that. And I was like, oh my God. I know. I mean, I think of... I You know... Obviously, working with Goggins has been the highlight of my career. Uh-huh. I think about the lessons uh, that he talks about all the time mm. in my life, and uh, and and even now. Right. Um, that's another thing to think about is 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 making sure you're honoring yourself and doing the hard work you need to do, mm-hmm. no matter what's happening out in the world. The world's always going to be noisy and crazy, um, so take time to do that too. I would I would tell uh all your listeners you know make make sure you're doing what you need to do too sometimes it could feel like if me swimming in the ocean and doing some free diving and you know it seems like it's not fair you know why am i doing that when all this stuff's going on and i, I just don't pay attention to that you have to do also you have, you have to, to take to care of yourself you yeah to you gotta and yeah. and you know goggins mantra is really there are so many things in this world that you can't control right so stop being a victim take control of what you can control and you know, take care of yourself, right? And and deal with the hard truths. Yeah, we're dealing with them. Yeah, and that's what we're dealing with right now. That's right. You know. All right, my friend. Um, we're going to be doing this again. So thank you. If you want to, uh, if you want to uh, find out more about Adam, where's the best place to track you down? Um, AdamSkolnick.com is my website, and. Um, Adam Twitter Live. and Instagram. No, Twitter and Instagram is just at Adam Skolnick. Adam Skolnick. Yeah. What, what was Adam's vibe? Oh, Isn't that's that- just you know. <laughs> you really want to know the origins of know. Adam's yeah. vibe in the in the nineties when email first became a thing. Uh-huh. It was Adam's vibration. <laughs> okay. Adam's vibe at yahoo.com. <laughs> and then All right. uh, that became this thing. But I'm I've, I'm. I think I'm going to fix that at some point. You know, uh-huh. maybe because when you're seventy, you don't want to be Adam's vibe. <laughs> Okay. Um, Awesome, man. Uh, Thank you so much. I appreciate it. This was super fun. Yeah, man. uh, Thanks for having me. And I will uh, link up everything in the show notes. Also link up Adam's stories that he was talking about and all the good stuff. So go there. And uh, that's it for today. I guess I'll just do, I can just do the outro now. I appreciate you guys listening to the show. Check the show notes for all the links and resources. Find out more about Adam. I want to thank everybody who helped put on today's show. Blake Curtis, who videoed today's show. Jason Camiello for doing the audio engineering. Uh, Allie Rogers for portraits. My boys, Tyler, Trapper, and Hari for the theme music for the podcast. Georgia Whaley for copywriting. Who else? What else did I forget? Jessica Miranda. Ah, Jessica Miranda for her graphics, of course. Awesome. Uh, We'll be back here in a couple days with my conversation with... Byron Davis and Phil Allen Jr. It's a banger. You guys are going to love it. Can't uh, wait so for that until one. Until then, be well, my friends. Peace. Plants.